Welcome to Third Opinion MD. I'm your host, Barbara Della Torre. I'm an artist and integrated physician asking questions about why we live with the healthcare system the way it is. I teach you ways to navigate the system, and I want to empower you to adopt self-care measures to ease your dependence on the system so that we can change it together. We are going to move into the conversation of what makes a doctor. I'm bringing in a dear friend of mine. Her name is Alicia Harrington, and she is a fourth-year medical student at an osteopathic school in Oregon. The two of us have had integrated training, and Alicia is now finishing her second phase of her integrated training as an osteopathic physician. She will be graduating in 2023. But we're going to have some very engaging discussion about, can we do this differently? Do we have to continue medical school the way it is? The way people are talking about doctors and their healthcare experience, I think it's time to think about reframing education. Welcome, Alicia. And tell us where you're going to school right now. So I go to Western University, Comp Northwest in Lebanon, Oregon. You're in your fourth year of osteopathic medicine. Yeah. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show is that I went to medical school to be a medical doctor and then studied acupuncture. In addition to that, you've done it the other way around. You studied acupuncture and then went on to practice. You were in private practice for a while. Yep, for nine years. Wow. And what made you decide to go to medical school? Becoming an acupuncturist, I felt like I had a really good skill set to help with their physical illnesses as well as emotional illnesses. But I didn't really feel like I knew that I understood what was going on at the underlying level of their health. And so I wanted to go back to school so that I had a better understanding of what was going on with my patients so that I could really help address their specific needs. And I really wanted to have a broad scope of practice. So being able to to help patients on every level, I felt like I needed to be a physician (laughs) to do that. Well, I think I want to clear some things up and I might even play devil's advocate a little bit on this one. So when you're saying playing to their specific needs, what kind of specific needs were missing when you were practicing acupuncture? When I was practicing acupuncture, they come from a healthcare system usually. You're not usually seeing patients who haven't had any healthcare previously. Patients would come in with a, a medical diagnosis. They would be on medications. I didn't really feel like I knew what those medications did and what the potential effects of them could be that would be affecting my treatments, maybe limiting my treatments or that my treatments such as herbal medicine might have a a negative effect with their current medications. So I didn't feel like I had enough knowledge about what they had going on with their medical conditions and current treatments when I was seeing them as an acupuncturist. So essentially what you're saying is that you wanted to learn the other language that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because a lot of people will go to acupuncture and think of it very separately. And you and I are kind of different where we think about, well, no, you really have to understand what both sides are doing so that the patient doesn't get harmed for one or redundancy doesn't happen. Like they Mm -hmm. do the same thing. And what I also find interesting is I tried to reach out to some acupuncturists to, and, and I remember one time I was reaching out to one saying, can you send me a report of what you're doing? And they almost like doubled over, like, are you kidding? Like no one asks us that. And then it, it took a little while to adjust to that. But then I was getting those kinds of reports because I really wanted to know. But that's not happening in general. So that makes perfect sense that you're wanting to adopt both. But I'm assuming that you want to go into more of a general practice than a specialty. Is that correct? 
yeah, right. I want to go into family medicine and that allows me to treat patients of all ages and life stages and really work with whatever health condition they come in. I think that's a really solid base. One of the things I wanted to ask is when you go to acupuncture school or when you did, how would you compare that to the medical school training you're getting now? How is it different? You know, there are some things that are really similar. We looked at different aspects of what acupuncture practice is or what oriental medicine has to offer in terms of its skills. I had acupuncture training where we found the acupuncture points and learned how to use the needles. We had twina, which is kind of a bodywork therapy that is the Chinese version of how we work with musculoskeletal system. We also learned herbal medicine, which I guess would be akin to the pharmaceuticals that I learned in medical school and nutrition, as well as other diagnostics and as well as Qigong. But in medical school, we have a different kind of style. We have the clinical skill set, which is like how to use the stethoscope and a sphygmomanometer. And then we have a class where you can't use those big words here, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) not without stopping, not without stopping to say what that is. Okay. Let's go back. (laughs) So like a stethoscope or a blood pressure cuff, right? Right. Okay. I know. Slow down med student. Yeah. I love those big words. There are some similarities. I agree. I think one thing though, that's interesting is the nutrition part. You mentioned nutrition. Mm -hmm. I remember in medical school, that we had maybe one or two nutrition classes. Was it different in acupuncture school? It was very different in acupuncture school. We had we had a whole bunch of nutrition classes. So, and it was about how to not only like what each food did energetically, like how we could use such things like a radish to help dry up phlegm, but we could also talk about how to create a nutrition program for a patient. So it was pretty extensive in my acupuncture training. I'm going to go over a season on nutrition and Chinese medicine. It's a whole huge, amazing and elegant topic. But one thing to keep in mind is we'll talk about things when we talk about nutrition. What Chinese medicine does is it translates food into pharmacy because each food has a particular property. And let's just talk about the word energy. If we talk about energy flowing smoothly in your body means healthy, then you want foods that are energetically matching the condition or helping to complement the condition or energetic pattern you have. People come with an energetic makeup already when they're born, and then they acquire things. We call that a constitution. And then there are energetic properties of foods that you can match so that you're not making yourself worse. You can actually have the opportunity to improve. And so that's what all these nutrition classes were. It's hard to really simplify it into one paragraph of what it is, but that's the basics is that we're trying to tailor it individually to people. And that's one of the things that I think is exciting in your background, that you you got to learn all this stuff about nutrition. It's a whole branch of Chinese medicine called Chinese dietetics. Kind of like when we think of specialties, like you go to the orthopedic surgeon or the gastroenterologist. In Chinese medicine, they have several branches. We talk about acupuncture, and that's what most people assume acupuncturists do, but actually, they're Chinese medical doctors. You are learning things like nutrition, that's one branch, body work, like twina, moxibustion, that's another one, where you're taking mugwort and you're heating it either directly or indirectly onto areas of the body where the points are. And then there's herbology, that's your pharmacy. Yep. Pretty exciting. And so you notice some similarities. How was nutrition? We'll talk about the core curriculum that I had. 
we did a very minimal amount of nutrition. I think the standard is about six hours of nutrition content is what medical schools are trying to offer. That's an improvement from when I was in medical school in, in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I think that's the average across the country. So I think there are some who definitely do less and some who, who do more. We have a professor at my school who was a big proponent of lifestyle medicine, though. So we got to have a whole elective. Once a month, we had a two-hour course on specific nutrition. It was after school, so it was like 7 p.m. There was always a dinner, a plant-based nutritional meal. We got to talk about the content of the food. Was and that free food? It was free food. Oh, nice. Which is oh, okay, good. For medical, <laughs> for medical students, that's like, that's bonus. That's really good. It was always full. We had like probably 75 to 100 students there every month who just went for this extra nutrition lecture. And maybe it was the free food, but it was very excellent that we got to talk about nutrition. Hey, and it, it gets people in the door. And, and you know, <laughs> this is the thing. A lot of people I ask, they think, well, these doctors, they don't care. They don't know these things. They want to know these things. We wanted to know these things. Medical school, whether it's osteopathic school or traditional medical training, it's still four years either way. There's this saying, when you're learning all this information in such a short amount of time, it's like drinking water through a fire hydrant. That's the expression. The other expression is you pee when you can, you eat when you can, and you sleep when you can, meaning you're so busy, you're running around like crazy to get yeah, things it's a, done. it's a lot of material that you really have to, to take in at one time. And we keep learning. It really should be a longer period of time. Because med school is not enough. You graduate, you don't really hang a shingle. You technically can after a year of residency and call yourself a generalist, but just about everyone gets a residency type training, which is a minimum of three years generally, and can go up longer with fellowships. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was wondering if you could tell me, what, what's the main difference between an osteopathic physician and a medical doctor? One of the big differences is that we do osteopathic treatments, which are a form of working with the structure of the body. So we work with the skeletal structure as well as the soft tissues and osteopathy is that practice. But we also have these four tenants that kind of guide the rest of our treatment. And that is the idea that structure and function are interrelated and that the body has the innate capability of healing and that our rational treatment should be based on those concepts. And that kind of goes along with the model of osteopathic medicine, that we need to address the the body as a whole and we need to look at the interrelated parts. There's several other ways that we can look at that. So osteopathy also has the five models where we look at each system and how it's interrelated and try and approach an effective treatment by addressing the aspects which are important to getting the patient back to a whole. You can go to osteopathic school and still be able to apply to the same residencies that someone going to medical school. You're called a DO. I'm, I have an MD degree, but we are equals. That's one thing that's commonly misunderstood. You're in such a great time right now. It's a lot to do with politics. Who's lobbying and who's defending their right to practice medicine? The history of medicine in the United States, you can see there were some that made it and some didn't. But the osteopathic schools did, and I'm really happy about that. I didn't go into osteopathic school because at the time, I think it was late 90s, I remember seeing something in the news where on the cruise ship, 
off the coast that somebody got sick. And they complained there wasn't even a doctor. There was only a DO on board. And <laughs> that is a doctor. <laughs> so they misunderstood. And I remember at the time I was wanting to study acupuncture. And so I had a serious talk with my mom because I said, I don't want to go to medical school. I want to go to osteopathic school. And we both kind of decided it was best probably that I went to medical school because otherwise I might have faced some stigma at the time for pursuing two things that were misunderstood. There is definitely still some worry, especially among students. And so that mm -hmm. kind of comes because there is still some judgment from the MD schools and MD residency programs. And when you apply to a residency program, just the fact that you went to an osteopathic school sometimes does make it harder to get into certain residencies, especially certain specialties. Which ones are the ones that are notorious for not understanding or, or for having bias? Essentially everything except for family medicine. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> well, you know, what's so ironic is that I feel like you guys actually have a more diverse education than the standard medical schools do because of that incorporation of structure and the interrelatedness of the systems. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have the same content as a regular medical school except for we have 200 extra hours that we spend learning about the structure of the body and different techniques that we can use to address that. We're actually better. Than <laughs> you can go ahead and say that here on this podcast, <laughs> because that's what I want to highlight is that, first of all, it's ridiculous. The schooling that we have is rigorous and it's stressful and it's not conducive to healthy living, which I think is kind of ironic. And the second thing is that once you get all of the schooling done, you, no one can be expected to memorize everything. I've had some people say, oh, that doctor Google, they don't even know. If you knew how much information people have to know, it's really hard. That's why I emphasize so much that we have to know ourselves best. Because if we don't, there's no way the physicians can help as much as they really optimally could. We have to know ourselves best. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Like when a patient comes in and has an idea of what's going on with them, it makes the visit faster. It allows us to get to the content that's relevant quickly. Sometimes people have vague symptoms and if they're not really aware what's going on with them, we have to spend a long time kind of getting to the bottom of it. Some patients have told me that they've been dismissed for coming in thinking they know what's going on. I literally was told this yesterday when I interviewed someone. They said, well, the doctor said, I'm the doctor here. I'm the one that's going to tell you what's going on. That's so unfortunate because it is a collaborative relationship and we as physicians are there to help. So dismissing your patient is not, not a good way to start. And that's why you have to have this real knack for navigating through the system because if you don't, then you can be targeted or labeled in a certain way. So it goes both ways. Patients sometimes will, there's all these terms like beating around the bush or circumferential history where you're just kind of talking around it. And so if you don't know yourself really well, you can't say what's going on. On the other hand, the doctors are limited on time. They're trained to speak a certain language. And it's almost like things get lost in translation. Yeah, It's terrible to be sick because it's like being homeless in your own body. It's a really awful feeling, especially when you don't know or you're afraid it's something that you've dreaded or it could be extremely serious. You don't know. 
you've got one more year or is it four years? Or are you taking a fifth year? So I took an extra year where I'm, I'm teaching that osteopathic curriculum to the first and second year classes. Now, why did you, why'd you do that? Why'd you decide to do that instead of going on to residency? Um, you know, there's several reasons. First and foremost, I wanted to be really good at doing osteopathic techniques. So taking that extra year and getting extra training to do it was a really great opportunity for me to hone those skills before I go to residency. And secondly, being able to work on my teaching skills, I felt was very valuable to becoming a physician because really doctor means means to teach. To become a physician, I feel like I need to be a teacher so that I can help my patients. And so to learn skills where I can effectively deliver information to patients, I think is very valuable to me. I agree with you 100%. And, and you're going to plan on continuing with acupuncture afterwards, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'll, yep, I will be practicing acupuncture in my family medicine practice. Are you going to work for a big corporation? I don't think so. <laughs> Easy answer, right? Now, well, here's the funny thing, though. A lot of people, when they graduate from medical school or osteopathic school, they're really not faced with many options. A lot of times the option is take a job with a big company these days. How are you going to manage going out on your own? Well, I was lucky that I had an acupuncture practice that I ran on my own for nine years. So I feel pretty comfortable with the business side of things. And to be honest, that really opened my eyes to the business of medicine, which is one of the main reasons I do not want to practice in a big corporation. Do you have friends who, besides me, who worked in corporate medicine? Do you know anybody else that? You know, it's it's interesting because most physicians, like you said, do end up working in a corporation and getting a job, at least with a, a large practice or even a small size practice is usually eventually bought by a bigger company. Just talking to people who are new residents or people who are finishing their residency and ready to go out to practice medicine, the most common answer I get is I'm not really someone who thinks who would be willing to practice in a private setting because I don't want to take care of all of the business of medicine. That answer to me just shows that we don't give enough education in how to run a practice and is one of the reasons that we have physicians going to practice in these big companies is because they don't feel comfortable dealing with the business side of things. So they feel like they need someone else to do it. Are you going to be doing that in your teaching? Are you going to be helping medical students, giving them the business side? Since I'm a, a fellow, that's my role is that I stayed back for to teach the students. We also do extra lectures on the side. And so for the other fellows, I'm trying to get more workshops on things like billing and coding and how to run a practice, because those are the things that I think scare most people from trying to open their own practice. But it's actually super easy. And there's tons of electronic health records that are out there that do it for you and make it really easy. So hopefully the more people know how to to do that, the more willing they would be to consider their own practice. There are ways to practice medicine without dealing with the insurance companies. Yeah. And that's probably the easiest way to go. That's the way I went when I went on my own. It is very, very difficult to be in private practice and take insurance as a physician in this country. It is not easy. It's expensive. It's cumbersome. There are many, many rules. That's why a lot of people give up. And like you said, with the lack of education, they don't look into how it's possible. Mm -hmm. But what direct primary care or concierge practices or things like that, then we have to deal with the other problem of access for people because they can't all access that. 
some people do better with big systems because of the multitude of issues that they have. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that, you know, as people get more savvy with learning about who they are and lifestyle medicine and preventive medicine, that they won't need such a convoluted system to yeah. take care of them. Yeah. I invited Alicia and she was very gracious. I said, let's go and meet some people outside. And I started to ask questions. I spent some time in China and oh, when wow. I went, I got sick while I was there. I was in Beijing and I was running because I was like an athlete in college. And I was running a lot and I went to the doctor because I was feeling super sick. And there's a lot of air pollution in Beijing and I didn't really put it together. And when I got in there, the first thing they go is, okay, tell me how your regular day is. Like from sun up, you get up to when you go to sleep. Just describe it. Taking notes the whole time, I'm telling them what I have for breakfast, my activities. Mm-hmm. And then they took all of that into consideration with my diagnosis, whereas like my experience in Western is you go in, what's the problem? And that's all they care about is fixing a problem. They don't care about your overall health and your overall day to day. My impression of medical training, I've never understood why they put them through the crazy hours that they do. It seems like that's just a way to kill any actual interest in humanity and just um, force the, the science down their throats. There's no time. Nobody can operate under that kind of stress. It was, it was a horrible experience. And then I did some volunteer work and I just really got just really felt like most of the people in that business are in it because they need the work more than the clients do. I felt like they're, they do more harm than good. I want to know how we can make medical education more integrative. I'm putting it out there. It needs to be integrative. If we can do that, how would you propose we do that? I think that giving medical students the opportunity to have electives where they get to experience some of the integrative medicine styles. Like, for example, we as osteopathic medical students went to OHSU, which is an MD school here in Oregon, and showed them what osteopathy was. And they all wished that they had the opportunity to learn it, all of the students who went. And so if if medical students had the opportunity to learn things like acupuncture and had the opportunity to learn more about nutrition, I think they would take advantage of that. And as far as acupuncture training, I feel like acupuncture training is so close to how we do medical training that I feel like if it just went a little bit further, you could be a fully qualified physician. It's very focused on the Chinese medicine, traditional aspects of medicine. And I think you could be a a fully qualified physician with just a little bit more training and fine tuning of the curriculum. There should be an integrated track. They talk about this with family medicine, each specialty that you do residency training and you have options to kind of tweak it a little bit. You could go on an OB track and take an extra year or sports medicine track fellowship, things like that to add on to your general training. I would envision longer medical school, but integrated. It needs to be integrated. You know how they talk about wellness or integrative clinics where you have an MD, you have an acupuncturist, you have a naturopath, and you have a massage therapist, and you call it an integrated clinic. It's not integrated unless they're all talking about that patient in the same room. Mm -hmm. Then it's integrated. Mm -hmm. If it is truly integrated, that individual is even in the room too. Right. But that's not. It's everybody billing separately. And it all comes down to that. How are they billing? 
my dream that I want to see is that we are training people to think like we are wanting to think. It's why we had to go to two different schools to do it. Yeah. I just heard about this model, so maybe I'm just really excited about it. But there's some family medicine programs are making it so when you enter medical school, you actually are already matched into that residency program as well. You have this really longitudinal track where you're you start out with some of the basic medical education, which a lot of that I think could be done in undergraduate if you had a fast track medical program rather than the kind of multiple layers of undergraduate, pre-med, medical school, and then residency. If those were all combined, I think you could you could do it better. You would have more of a chance for having that integrative medicine track because the students are there the whole time and you could you could interweave that throughout all of that curriculum. And this is of course something that probably won't do, but I think everybody who goes to medical school needs to do some kind of service industry work. <laughs> they need idea. to they need to wait tables, they need to work in a grocery store. They need to do some kind of service to be out there to know what it's like to not be in school. Yeah. <laughs> because the folks that go straight through school don't go through life learning enough. We're in school f- so long that we get isolated from what's happening in the real world. And I was a non-traditional student, so I actually went to med school. I turned 30 my first year of med school. And the average age of my class was in the late 20s, early 30s. It's a different cohort than folks in the early 20s where you see them, by the time they get out of residency, they're in their mid to late 20s, and then they're already getting promoted to chief of a department. (laughs) I mean, come on. They don't have any life experience. Patients know that. They can smell that from a mile away. If somebody has been in school for 10, 12 years and never out in the real world, you've had that opportunity Mm -hmm. where you've been out in the real world, and now you're going back. It's really... I think a cool perspective. Yeah. It gives you a little bit more. I feel like I have good emotional regulation because of that. And that helps. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Because there's this emotional quotient or emotional intelligence that a lot of people already don't have. And we have to, as providers, as physicians, we should have it. And it's already a stressful job, but it's also a relatability to say, I've been there. I know what that's like. Because there are people that are told to go right back to work. I mean, you're seeing that with COVID too, where people have long COVID symptoms Mm -hmm. and they are told to go back. And some people can go back if they're sitting at a desk, but some people who are on their feet all the time, they can't, they can't do it very well. I think it's that understanding that, that uh, compassion and empathy. Yeah. Yeah. It really makes me, it reminds me that as physicians, our role is very relational. Our role is to really see who our patients are and help them with whatever aspect of their health that they need help with. And that's like, that role is being a guide. And the only way we can do that is by understanding who we're guiding. And if we can't kind of step outside of our shoes and into the shoes of our patients, it's really hard to do that. And I think that's where a lot of burnout comes from in physicians is when they're not able to relate to their patients. And either that's a time constraint because they're, they have 15 minute visits or they just are so stressed with all the paperwork that they have to do that they can't really focus on the person in the room with them at the time. The more we can create that environment and the people who are prepared to relate to their patients and really connect in that few minutes that they're with their physician and their patient. I think that would make medicine a lot better. 
What's your vision of a practice that would give you balance in your life? I've had the opportunity to go work in several different healthcare settings, and that's part of medical school. We do rotations and get to go to different clinical settings to experience what that practice is like. And I've tried to get the most broad experience that I can so I can kind of envision what I want for myself. And I can see myself having between 300 and 500 patients that I know pretty well, that I can know their dog's names, their family of five, and they're five of my patients. And I might see their grandma as well. And yeah, I'll be, I'll be one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hurry up. (laughs) God, four more years, just four more years. (laughs) What do you think family medicine residency is going to be like for you? Well, if I get the family medicine residency program that I'm hoping for, I think it'll be pretty great because while it is rigorous and does have a lot of constraint on the way you can practice and the time that you have to practice in, I think it will will prepare me for the diverse practice that I hope to have. And I think there's a lot of opportunities in some family medicine programs to do things like mindfulness-based stress reduction training and to do some other lifestyle medicine training and to continue with my osteopathic training so that I can really have a really good set of skills to address whatever needs my patients have. And you have good support where you are? Yeah, I do have really good support. I have good support from the faculty at my school, helping me kind of find what that niche is that I'm going to fill. And I've have a lot of support from residents that I know that I've kind of reached out to, to see how I can get into the residency program that I'm hoping for, as well as family support. My partner is also a medical student and started as his intern program this year. So I have some support knowing, knowing what the path looks like. I'm really glad because you need that support with the kind of demands that are set for what you have to do to finish. I think that's something that people don't understand is how much doctors give up to be doctors. From pre-med, which is four years, to getting into medical school, you have to score very highly on a a standardized exam, the MCAT, to get into medical school, which is a lot of pressure. It's a like six-hour exam that's very difficult, and you have to be at the top of your undergrad class. Once you get into medical school, which could be anywhere in the country, you just have to stick it through, and you are in class most days or studying basically 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., you, you basically gave up your 20s to be a medical student, and then you have to go to residency. And that's also very rigorous. You apply to 20 to 80 programs, hoping to get 16 interviews. Then you just kind of put a gamble on where you're going to live and where you're going to practice your first few years of medical residency. And it's a lot. It's definitely very demanding and very draining. So without support, I definitely couldn't do it. Yeah, I agree. I actually remember a couple of med students in my class that developed mental illness. And it was along with the statistics that we were seeing at the time. And another medical student committed suicide afterwards, not during medical school, but later after being trained as a physician. That's something we also don't talk about enough is that it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Suicide rates are much higher among physicians than they are among other positions and It's unfortunate because we are supposed to be a model for our patients and we have to give so much to our patients and we often don't give back enough to ourselves. The whole culture of medicine is, frankly, it's toxic. And I think that that starts 
because of the training programs and what's expected of physicians. It's unrealistic. It's unsustainable. And it did not prepare them for what they're going into. And because it's changed, because the autonomy is gone now, it's gone unless you do what you're doing because you've got the knowledge and the experience to go out on your own. But for probably like 90 plus percent of graduating residents, they're going to work for a company. And those companies do not care about their well-being at all. And unless it's forced, which is really sad, a lot of people talk about unions, but the fact that we have to go to unions means that there's a system problem anyway. And that uh, you're studying so long. I mean, for some people, it's their 20s. I lost my entire 30s in training. A lot happens. Like, that's supposed to be kind of a golden time. I was lucky to have supportive family, but it's still, it takes a toll. So I think part of medical education should be learning how to be a healthy person and keep people healthy more than what they're doing. Really, you need to back up what you're saying. So if they say we care about you, they need to show it. They need to show it by allowing people to rest. I don't know why we still have this residence schedule. I don't know why we still have these horrendous calls. And I even drank the Kool-Aid and said, yeah, if you're not trained that way, you know, all the things happen overnight, which there's still a part of me that thinks about that, that you've got to work well under stress in order to be a doctor. That's kind of true. But do we have to be in a war zone for 10 years? I really don't think so. I think the idea of building resilience and capacity comes from taking it in doses where it's not too fast and too much and that we have that support. Why can't we build that resiliency into our education where it's dosed and not drinking water through a fire hydrant? Right. (laughs) Some food for thought. Mm -hmm. We'll have more conversations. I want to really keep up with where you are. And I think maybe we can bring you back when you're in your next stage, like when you're in family medicine. It'd be interesting to see where you are. But let me just tell you, I'm not worried about you at all. (laughs) Thanks. I'm glad I have your support. You're definitely someone I I look to. to You're going to always have my support. And I think you've got really solid footing. I mean, the fact that you have the Chinese medicine background first beforehand will help a lot. Because then you can kind of see like neurons are blending these things together somehow, which I think that's happening all the time. I want to thank you so much for taking time to, well, first of all, I had a blast when we went walking around. It was really fun and meaningful to me. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, and I'm totally happy to do it again. So there you have it. Two women who have trained in two types of medicine to practice in an integrated way. It's not far-fetched. It's not ridiculous. In fact, it's totally possible. Medical education does not have to be set in stone. We need to get out of the 19th century, or at least the early 20th century, and get into today. So I urge all of you to look more into this. If you are interested in going into medicine and becoming a physician, think outside the box. Don't take the status quo. And as you'll find out in the next episode, I'm going to be interviewing a historian who studied fraudulent medicine and the movements against healthcare fraud and defining the boundaries between orthodox and unorthodox medicine. It's not as simple as you think. Stay tuned. Be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast and submit a rating on your favorite podcast player. I'd love to hear from you. Please send me your comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics and guests you'd like to have on the show. Third Opinion MD podcast is produced by me, Barbara Dillatore. 
music is licensed through Audio Jungle. Any comments made by the host or guest on Third Opinion MD reflect opinions about healthcare and self-care. Please consult with your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Thank you for listening. <laughs>